Chapter 15 of Stories in Grey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Stories in Grey by Barry Payne. Miniatures Part 2. The Woman in the Road. Henderson drove slowly. There were several small carts in the road, driven in the indolent, unintelligent, rustic fashion, and little groups of villagers. All were going in the same direction, turning in at the gates of the drive. Henderson had seen the notices of the sale by auction displayed in the outer walls of the garden. Everything apparently was to be sold, and everything included a motor car. It might be worthwhile to look at it. Henderson wanted a more powerful car than the one he was driving, and there might be other things that he would like to buy. In any case, these auction sales were frequently amusing. A dealer came up to him as he stepped out of his car, and asked if he could execute any commissions. He took Henderson to see the big motor car. "'Mr. Jasper only drove it about a month,' said the dealer. "'Why is it being sold?' "'Everything is being sold. Mr. Jasper is bankrupt and in prison now.' It was a modern, up-to-date, 36 HP car, and Henderson went over it with an engineer's critical eye and could find no fault. When his prolonged examination was finished, he decided that if it went for 400 he would buy it. He believed that it would fetch much more, but at these country sales one never knew. He gave the dealer his instructions, and the dealer bought the car for him for 95 "'Now then,' said Henderson to the dealer, "'tell me what's wrong.' "'There's nothing wrong that a sensible person would take any notice of. "'These villagers get ideas into their heads. "'Mr. Jasper wasn't liked even before that thing happened, and—' "'Look here, what's this?' said Henderson. "'He unwound a few long black hairs that were entangled in the acetylene lamp. "'Bless my soul!' exclaimed the dealer. "'They must have come from the woman that he killed.' "'Ran a woman down on the road, did he? How was that?' He was bad-tempered always, and that day he was drunk, too. I suppose she didn't skip out of the road fast enough for him. Why didn't you tell me all this before? I suppose you knew it. Everybody about here knows it. Why, it was because of what she said just before she died that no one would bid today. She said she knew she was going to die, but she was not done with the car yet. She was a gypsy, and some people think that gypsies can foretell things. It's all stuff and nonsense to my mind. It's absolute stuff and nonsense. Why didn't you buy the car yourself? You might have made money on it. Might or might not. It's not my line of business. I know nothing about motors, and I've got no capital to put into a thing like that. A few days later, Henderson got his big car home. He was delighted with it. He liked to feel the great power under him, and to compare the pace at which he could take the steepest hills now with what he had been able to do on the smaller car. This smaller car he had sold for considerably more than he had paid at the auction, and on the whole he considered that it had been a very good day's work for him, and blessed the superstitions and prejudices of ignorant people. The rest of the story came out in the evidence which Henderson's driver, a Frenchman who spoke no English, gave at the inquest. The interpreter was asked more than once by the coroner if he was quite certain that he was giving the man's evidence correctly. The evidence was that Henderson was driving fast on a straight stretch of road with nothing in sight. There was a stone wall on his left. Suddenly Henderson gave a loud cry, pulled the wheel hard over to the left, and dashed into this wall. By some miracle the Frenchman was not injured in the least, and he did the best he could for his master, who lay unconscious. In a minute or two Henderson opened his eyes and spoke. He said, "'Did we go over her?' The driver told him there had been nobody there. "'Of course there was,' said Henderson. She jumped out suddenly in the middle of the road, right in front of the car, a swarthy sort of woman, looked like a tramp. He tried to say more but again became unconscious and died in a state of unconsciousness an hour later. Two men. The murderer generally knows that he is a murderer. 
the vain man who is from a social point of view is frequently the greater sinner never knows that he is vain unless somebody tells him even then he must be told with considerable force and the hypothesis that the teller is jealous must be too absurd to be tenable richard peril was convinced somewhat suddenly of vanity and his other defects by rhoda lestrange the social manner may be only skin deep but it is a tough skin it takes more than a scratch to get through it the natural rhoda came through one night at a dance when peril made her angry without intending it when a boy suddenly tears off the boxing gloves and wishes to continue with bare fists there is generally somebody handy to stop him but there happened to be nobody to stop rhoda i doubt if anybody could have stopped her a moment before she had been smiling and saying the usual things and before peril could grasp what the reason was though she soon told him she was being absolutely truthful absolutely merciless absolutely brutal his first feelings were those that he would have had if a woman to whom he was talking had suddenly lost all control of herself through drink or madness but those feelings changed later he was swept out of momentary horror into lasting shame he had been speaking of lucy willinger's engagement which he professed to find incomprehensible rhoda was an intimate friend of lucy's and understood the engagement perfectly but as she had no intention of telling pearl anything about it she said that she thought so too Pearl suggested that pique might be the explanation. "'In fact,' he added fatuously, "'I have heard it hinted, though it is ridiculous enough, that I am to blame.' The social manner still held. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'Did you advise her in any way?' "'No, not that.' Rhoda's eyes flashed. "'Since you are so fond of explanations, I will tell you one or two things that you had better know. Things about yourself.' "'Delighted.' said Peril, who had not seen the eyes or grasped the situation. For instance, I think you do not know that you are the common joke of the set that by no means for your sake still tolerates you. I have seen you leave people whom you evidently thought that your bragging had impressed mightily, and I have been sorry that you did not hear what was said when you had gone. I suppose you cannot help it. It is one of your natural disadvantages. It is one of many. You need not stare at me. I know perfectly well that I have lost my temper. I hope I shall lose my temper again if I ever again hear a cad lying about a woman to satisfy his silly vanity. It is not likely. One is generally careful not to meet your type. If a woman talks to you at dinner to satisfy conventions and her hostess, you think that she is in love with you. If you had not been as dense as a millstone, you might have seen how all women, and Miss Willinger particularly, worked and plotted to avoid your society. You shall hear presently what they say of you of your appearance, your manners, your habit of drinking too much, your blunders, your brag, even your fancied accomplishments. You do not even know the nickname by which everyone calls you, but you shall know it. You are fond of explanations. Afterwards, even your vanity will not tempt you to say that Miss Willinger or anybody else was in love with you. Peril had gone very white. I can see that I have offended you, but I think that there is a misunderstanding. I did not say that Miss Willinger was in love with me. I even expressed my opinion that the idea was ridiculous. You did not say it? No, because you thought it would impress me more if you said that others said it. And you did not mean me to think you ridiculous. You are amusing when you try to veil your brag. You always do it so clumsily. But I thought you would make some such spiritless excuse. Well, let me tell you some true stories, things you have done and things other people have said of you. That was where, he told himself afterwards, he should have left her but he had a morbid desire now to know the very worst, for all the vainest men live on the edge of a precipice of self-abasement. She gave him chapter and verse, dryly and bitterly, 
She must have hated him for a long time and made notes of things in her mind. The image of himself, as he had supposed himself, collapsed in fragments. Out of them arose a ghastly figure, himself as he was and now knew that he was. For a moment he had a sense of injustice. He had said a silly thing from a kind of instinctive vanity and without planning it consciously, but did it merit this virulent punishment? What did it matter? Socially, he was done and finished. Rhoda Lestrange would cut him, and she would take good care not to be alone in her action. He found himself standing up, speechless. He got out somehow. After the last carriage had rolled away in the early morning, he was still awake. He sat and thought over the comparative values of suicide, the Catholic Church, active service, the life of a scholar and a recluse. Underneath them all was the idea that he had to get away from them, but primarily he had to get away from himself. A few months later he left England for New York. He returned three years afterwards, shy, quiet, unselfish, and wealthy. He then married Rhoda Lestrange. And if this seems curious, remember that vanity is a vice with a cognate virtue, which is imagination, and that women and men have a tendency to admire their own work. The Enemy From the Letters of Lady Raffenstall, formerly Miss Hilda Brownton First Extract Bearing an Address at Littlehampton you must, of course, write and let me know about everything. One feels so much out of it in this forsaken place. For that matter, I am not sure that I do not feel even more out of it when I am in London nowadays. The plain fact, which to you, my dear friend, I may mention quite candidly, is that I am definitely middle-aged. I am just forty. I have grown fatter, or, as most of my dear friends are probably putting it at this present moment, I have coarsened. On the whole, it is perhaps as well that the illness of my children and the usual doctor's formula have brought me to a hideous and minstrel-haunted seaside. When I am in London, I am so much less sought after nowadays that I grow full of bitterness. After one has had the feast, one should lose the hunger. If I had the making of this world, I would make it differently, in many respects. I did have the feast. They say that I have two suicides to my credit and some minor heartbreakages. I could do what I liked. Everybody was always trying to get me to go to their things. I was in the academy three years running, and always by a first-rate man. And the kind people say that I must have been a beauty once, and the unkind people say that I have coarsened. By the way, do you remember the portrait that Hallam did of me fifteen years ago, just before I was married? He would not sell it, and Harry was rather mad about it. Well, Hallam's dead, and has left the portrait specifically to Harry in his will. It is the one where I am all in white, playing with a kitten. My God, what a fool I should look all in white, playing with a kitten now. However, Harry is delighted to have got the portrait, and writes that he has hung it in the library at our house in Hill Street. He does not come down here, by the way, which is scandalous of him. However, he writes letters inquiring affectionately about the children. How one loses everything when one is middle-aged. This is a boresome letter, all about myself, but you know what the seaside is. There is nothing in one's surroundings which will bear thinking about for one moment. A woman with a fringe and a portable harmonium, neither of which suits her in the least, has just planted herself in the street outside these windows, and a husky baritone, with cockney accent, is singing, There's only one girl in this world for me. What a life! Yes, the children are better, thanks. Write again soon. Second extract. Bearing the address of a house in Hill Street, W. When one deteriorates in value, one ought, I suppose, to become much cheaper. I am seriously thinking of becoming much cheaper. I could still, on the title, get a parcel of little Jews and people from the city to run about after me. No, I was joking, and not in the best taste. 
In five years' time I shall be all resignation and black cashmere, a peaceful, grey-haired old lady with a saintly life and a spotless reputation, which is acquired by those who can neither tempt nor be tempted. That again is rather horrible, and I am inclined to write no more until I am in a better frame of mind. However, let's try and look at the bright side of things. The children are quite well, and that is a blessing. Harry gives me no trouble whatsoever. Of course, I knew he was a maniac when I married him. I rather liked him for it. My picture by Hallam in the library has flowers before it perpetually, and lighted candles in the evening. He spends most of the day there with the door locked. Sometimes for two or three days I never exchange three words with him. This is rather funny, as we are both living in the same house. I really fancy he must be a little mad. I could understand his neglecting me, which he does in the kindest and most gentlemanly way, since I am middle-aged and fat and ugly, or shall we say coarsened. Men don't age so quickly as women, and he is still far from being an old man. That is why I want to know who the enemy is. When he stopped caring a pin's head about me, who was it for whom he began to care all the world? Who is the enemy? I do not say this by way of complaint. As I said, I am looking now at the bright side of things. So far as I can make out, there is not at this moment in the world a single woman for whom Harry tears two pence. But then, as I said, he is a maniac. Third extract. Bearing an address at Grand Town, Moorishire. I am getting seriously annoyed with Harry. I hate to see money fooled away. He is not a pauper, but his expenditure should at least be reasonable. The children and I, with the servants, came on here first. He followed a few days afterwards, and he followed in a special train, if you please. When I remonstrated with him on the absurdity of it, he said that he did not take the train for his own sake. As there was nobody else in it except his valet and the railway officials, I should be glad to know for whose sake he did take it. By the way, as a further sign of his mania, in the same train he brought with him Hallin's portrait of me from our house in Hill Street. The same silly nonsense with the flowers and candles, and the locked room has gone on here. At first I was pleased, even a little flattered by his adoration of this portrait, but I confess that it begins to madden me exceedingly now. One or two of the people staying in the house have made little jokes about it which I resented very much. One young idiot spoke of the portrait to me the other night as my only possible rival. When the truth is expounded to you by a fool, it is even more infuriating than the truth generally is. I like this place. I do not care if I never go back to London again. I hate society. I hate most things. I think I shall hate Harry, only I am hardly on familiar enough terms with him to do that. Fourth extract, dated a month later, from the same address. We have had a scene. That is my great piece of news. A very serious scene. Partly as a kind of practical joke, and partly to satisfy my own feeling, Last night, while the men were lingering over their cigarettes, I got to the shrine of my sacred portrait of his worship, and cut it out of the frame and burnt it. An oil painting, by the way, takes a good deal of burning. It has to be done in sections. I was just finishing off the last little piece. It had my hand on it, with the engagement ring on one of my fingers, when Harry and the rest came in. As I said to him afterwards, I do not in the least mind his losing his temper, and it is quite immaterial to me whether he is in a good temper or a bad, but I will not have him lose his temper with me before people. Last night it was really most embarrassing. You never heard such a volley of abuse. Nobody knew what to do or where to look or what to say. I laughed at him all the time. Amongst other kindly remarks of his was one that he would much sooner I had cut myself up in pieces and burned them. Since writing the above, I have seen Harry. He declines to live in the same house with me any more, 
and has gone back to town for the present. The funny thing is, he says he cannot stand, even for a moment, the presence of a woman whom jealousy has rendered absolutely insane. If it comes to a question of sanity, I may have something to say. There will be a separation, I suppose, judicial or otherwise. I do not much care. P.S. Thanks for the pamphlet on diet for the obese. I shan't trouble about it, though. I think I shall live on the continent in the future. That is the place for the used up. However, I have killed the enemy now. Idle in the Churchyard The churchyard stood well above the village. The nearest way to it was by a path over the fields. At present it lay very quiet in the cool of the summer evening, until the quiet was broken by the creak of two large new boots. A man of forty-five, with a complicated face in deep mourning, and a lavish band upon his hat came creeping around the corner of the church, and then creaked across the grass to a well-kept grave. The face was complicated because it told such different things. Years of small commerce in the country had lent it much of the parochial and commonplace, but the eyes were those of a tired epicure. The tombstone told in gilt lettering that it was sacred to the memory of Lavinia, for seventeen years the pious and devoted wife of Alexander Hythe. The date of the decease was very recent. A quotation from a favorite hymn completed the inscription. The man removed a very shiny black glove, a glove which had blue highlights on it in the sun, and began to pull up one or two weeds, adjusted the cross of everlastings, which was not quite straight. Then he drew that terrible kid glove on again, and folded his fat hands together, and closed his tearless eyes. He opened his eyes again when he heard a step on the gravel. The woman, who had once been good-looking, came along the path toward him. She was neatly dressed in a brown coat and skirt, and she had small feet and hands. One of the hands carried a bunch of white roses. She came across the grass to the mourner and said good evening, timidly, and feared that she had intruded. Then she laid her roses on the grave and would have slipped away, but the man stopped her. "'You needn't go, Mrs. Burgess,' he said heavily. "'Not at least so far as I'm concerned.' "'I just wanted to leave those few roses,' she said. "'You see, not a being a relation, I don't wear any mourning. "'George, in fact, objected to it just for the funeral. "'He said that it was carrying things too far. "'Still, she and I were always friends, and... "'But I do feel that I am intruding. "'It was a pity I chose just this time.' "'What for?' said the man, almost savagely. "'You've got all the right here that I have, and perhaps more. "'Pious and devoted wife, it says. "'She was pious, too.' I've never seen the weather yet that would keep her out of the church Sunday morning, or Sunday evening, not while she had the strength to walk. Devoted, too, said the woman warmly. Yes, said the man drearily. Lavina was devoted enough. She knew her place and never went out of it. She had always got a sharp eye to my interest. How I'm to replace her in the shop, I really don't know. But— Well, said the woman a little eagerly. You know, he said bitterly. You know well enough, regular hell, that's what it was, and I may as well say the truth about some living being and get it over. It was your fault, too. Mine? The woman gasped. Yes, said the man. I was a boy when I married her, and I was in love with you all the time. I never told you so. I never breathed the word of it till this moment. I dare say it comes as a shock to you. I never knew it, the woman said huskily. How could you? You were rather a cut above me, and you took all the care you could to keep out of my way. I wasn't going to make a fool of myself then, and though I don't seem to care so much now. Lavinia was ready, and one thing led to another. Well, I wouldn't put a lie on a tombstone or anywhere else. She was a pious and devoted wife, and you may leave it at that. I did my duty by her, too. This last illness, money was not spared, I can tell you. I could show you some of the bills, though, of course it's no use. Some of the things I could get at trade prices— 
but not chemist stuff, of course. You may say that she had everything she wanted, and I've had nothing that I wanted. Nothing. Not one solitary thing all my life. The woman looked away from him and out into the distance. She spoke hesitatingly. At that time, when we were quite young, boy and girl together, I suppose it never occurred to you. What? said the man, and as he looked at her he knew. For a minute or two neither of them spoke. Perhaps I shouldn't have let myself go like this, said the man, shyly and apologetically. When one has kept silence for so many years, one might go on to the end. I should have remembered that you were a married woman, too. I ought to have asked after your husband. No worse, I hope. The woman nodded, shivered, and began to cry. He came nearer to her, and she ran away from him down the path. The next day, Mr. Hythe made some inquiries for a woman to help him in the shop to do the work that his late wife had done. He explained that it would just be a temporary appointment. The Life Underground, from the unpublished letters of Horace Marsh of Soxwold. So, my dear Edward, it is all over. My sanity is proved to the satisfaction of the lawyers and the medicine men, and poor Herbert will not at present have the management of my affairs. I fear he is sadly disappointed. I have made a new will today, and when nature calls me from this world, and the contents of that will become known, he will be sadly disappointed again. It is possible that he will try once more, then. The old stories of the temple of Aphrodite in the park and of my underground mansion, and of the immense sums that I have squandered on them, will be brought out again. Anything to prove that I was not of a sound disposing mind. Really, the newspapers ought to subsidize poor Herbert. He gives them such stories. And what will you say in my defense when that day comes and I can no longer speak for myself? You have an easy tolerance, Edward. You admit that I have spent these vast sums, and that I have spent them on objects on which the ordinary rich man would not care to spend two pence. But as you pointed out to Herbert, the money was mine to do with as I would, nor am I, in spite of all the expense, ruined in fortune. On the question of my desire at times to live underground, you refuse to see any evidence of madness there. Every man, you added truly, has some eccentricity or other. Yes, I am sanguine enough and optimistic enough to believe that even the most commonplace of mortals, a governess or a minor poet, in some respect, mere trifle though it may be, is differentiated from all the others. But if you import into that word eccentricity, any hint of irrationality or weakness, then, so far as my underground life is concerned, I join issue with you. I have my reasons for what I do. Nor can I admit that I am so very unusual. The temporary withdrawal from the world is a luxury for many natures, and a necessity for some. It may be the desert, or the mountaintop, or the hermit's cave, or, as in my own case, the more complete seclusion of an underground dwelling. One would hear more of such things if more men had the courage of their opinions, or could pay the price of their satisfaction. Imagine, if you can, all that the iron outer doors of the descending stairs shut out for me. Down there the engines of the world are stopped and the rattle is still. There is no fatal recurrence of day and night, and one loses that intolerable sense of time going on as a turning wheel in a vast mill where mortals are but the grain. Down there it is always the same light and always the same hour. The past that I spent in the world above becomes to me quite unreal, and the present moment is perfect rest. And the future? There seems to be none. The engines of the world are stopped. I am no longer the grain in the mill. I am the captain of my soul. Free will may still be a delusion, but the delusion is complete. You shake your head and talk of neurasthenia. Names have never frightened me. You may call it that if you like, and you may call my life underground the treatment. 
for it is due to that withdrawn and secluded life that I can come back to the world sane and steady and convince the medicine men and disinherit poor Herbert. Names do not frighten me, but I am a coward before facts. This to the ordinary man is an idyllic spot in the open country, a peaceful resting place for the over-civilized and over-tired. It is not so to me. It is full of torturing facts. I stand appalled as much before the needless and inevitable fecundity as before the pitiless and inevitable destructiveness of nature. All that is inevitable is to me terrifying. It is nothing that the streams run downward, and that the stone released from my hand falls to the ground. But it is everything to me that the stream must run downward, and that the stone must fall. It gives me no sensation of beneficent law and order. I feel as if I were being carried away, I knew not whither, and some machine that I can neither control nor understand. I am frightened. And just as a terrified child buries his head under the bedclothes, so I go to my underground dwelling, the expensive construction of which annoyed poor Herbert so much. Do not tell me, since I am well aware of it, that time goes on, and the natural laws are not suspended below ground. I know it, but down there the evidence is less overpowering. Do not think either that this terror is always with me. If it had been so, poor Herbert would have had his way. There are days when a flower is to me the same thing of beauty and fragrance that it is to others, and nights when I can listen to the nightingales in my garden with joy. I can talk then without great trouble of local politics and cricket scores to the somewhat indifferent specimens of my species that live in this neighborhood. I am, to use your favorite word, normal. And then the day comes when I can see nothing in the flower but a grotesque and purposeless reproduction of its kind, and when the song of a nesting bird is more bitter for its beauty, when every village child in the street is a tragedy, when every life, every useless life, is a senseless death for its birthmark. And this is, of course, especially terrible in the springtime. The wheel is at the height of its revolution, the furnace roars, the engine throbs, the mighty machine that makes and breaks us works over time. If only one could find in nature the least human analogy. If only in the purpose at the back of things one could discern a standard of values which was humanly comprehensible. But it is not so. Nature knows nothing of utility, or beauty, or nobility as we know them. It knows nothing even of cruelty. If it were maliciously inhuman, one might bear it. But it is not human. And the highest we can think or do may be a jest elsewhere to other beings. And since it is now the springtime, my dear Edward, and since poor Herbert has made me very tired, you will not hear of me for a week or two. End of chapter 15 Recording by Susanna Mason